Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument, and this is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include reconsidering the political philosopher Hannah Arendt on subjects of totalitarianism and Adolf Eichmann. The second presentation will be on lessons on how to invest in tech stocks. I know this is really different uh, topics, but that's what makes a variety show. Our first speaker will be Richard Bernstein, who is the Vera List Professor of Philosophy and the former Dean of the New School for Social Research. Richard is also the author of Why Read Hannah Arendt Now. Hannah Arendt's ideas remain relevant. In this weekend's Wall Street Journal book discussion, there are a review of two new books about Hannah Arendt. One is on the dispute between Arendt and Isaiah Berlin about the Adolf Eichmann trial, and the other book is about Arendt's disagreements with the famous sociologist Theodore Adorno. Seems like she had trouble making friends with some of the other leading European intellectuals of her time. I want to learn from Richard what is original about Hannah Arendt's views on totalitarianism and what other of her ideas are worth further investigation. Our second speaker today is Mark Mahaney, who is the top-ranked institutional investor equity analyst for internet stocks. Mark covers this sector, including some of the best well-known names like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, as well as Spotify, Shopify, and Zillow. Today, Mark will discuss his new book, Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock Picking Lessons from one of Wall Street's top tech analysts. I want to learn about these investment lessons and apply them to a particular stock like Spotify so we can learn how to implement his stock picking methods. Since I started this podcast in March 2020, I have commented on each of the employment reports released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I do this because the U.S. employment report is the most important economic statistic globally and reflects the economy's rate of change towards recovery. This Friday's economic announcement was another surprise. The labor report was particularly strong and better than forecast. Using the establishment survey, employment increased by 531,000 jobs in October, and the surveys for August and September were revised upward by a combined total of 250,000 and averaged 400,000 for these two months. The demand for workers remains near record levels with 10.6 million job openings. According to Casey Mulligan, who spoke on this program, employment should improve now that the government reduced its payments for those not working. Employment is up 18 million jobs since the trough of the economic downturn in April 2020, but we are still down 4 million jobs since before COVID. I want to highlight a paper just released by Miguel Faria Castro, an economist at the St. Louis Fed that focuses on early retirement by older workers. He finds that since COVID, there have been 3 million more retirements than those, uh, than were those otherwise expected, and that this explains most of the decline in employment. What is discouraging about this problem is that it is likely that these early retirees will not return to the labor force. Some older workers may have been scared of, contact, of contracting COVID, and others felt like maybe given the poor state of the economy in 2020 that, exce that accelerated their retirement plans. And I suspect when workers recognize the joys of retirement that they won't want to return to work. 
Historically, retired persons return to the workforce when they face an unexpected decline in wealth. But with both the stock market and real estate values at all-time highs, I don't think lack of savings will be the issue in the near future. The implication of this early retirement is that the, the federal government use of fiscal stimulus, like spending $1.2 trillion on the uh, infrastructure legislation that passed the House yesterday, there may be an insufficient number of domestic unemployed workers to do the job. This will cause wages to rise and be inflationary. During this live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. All right, let's begin today's program with our first speaker, Richard Bernstein. Richard, go ahead. Okay, uh, my name is Richard Bernstein. Most people call me Dick. I am a professor of philosophy at the New School for Social Research, and it's right that I was a former dean. And I want to talk to you about Hannah Rent and a little book that I've just uh, been written, which has now been translated into a dozen languages. I think most people who have problems just have heard, know the name Hannah Rent, And many people associate her with the Eichmann contra controversy uh, based on her report of the Eichmann trial in the early 60s. And many people associate it with the phrase, the banality of evil, and of course, People have heard that she wrote about totalitarianism without knowing uh, much about her. So let me just say this, um, that Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, she died in, she was born in 1906 and she died in 1975. When she was died, she was locally known by mainly New York intellectuals, but something remarkable has happened between 1975 and today. She is now recognized as one of the most important political thinkers of the uh, 20th century. I can tell you from my own experience, wherever I go in this world, whether it be Korea or Shanghai or Belgrade or Lima, there are people who are passionately interested in, in her work. So uh, before I begin talking about some of her ideas, let me say something about her life because I think it's relevant and interesting. She was born in 1906 in Germany, um, and that's where she grew up. Um, she is born of an assimilated Jewish family, but she tells us that the word Jew was not even mentioned in her family when she was growing up. It's only, you might say, in the 1920s, with the increase of anti-Semitism and the coming of Hitler, that she became much more aware of what's going on politically and historically. Um, some friends of her, she was quite bohemian and quite left, Not a, she never joined organizations, but some friends of her who were Zionists came and asked her to do some research on anti-Semitic uh, propaganda in the German library. She was apprehended because it was considered horror propaganda. She was interrogated for eight days, but she had the good luck of being released. The reason I say it's good luck is because we know many people in a similar situations that were murdered in the basins of the Gestapo. On the basis of that experience, she made a decision to leave German illegally. And she did in the spring of 1933, making her way first to Prague and ultimately to Paris, where many German exiles, particularly German Jews, were resided for a number of years, thinking that France was relatively safe. When the Germans, began to decide to march on France. The French government 
made a decision to put all German exiles into internment camps. And she was sent to an internment camp in the southern France um, named Gours. And when the Germans actually marched on France, there was chaos, and she managed to escape. I don't want to tell the whole story, but she really was continued to be lucky because she managed to get a visa to the United States, even though she was a, um, a stateless uh, Jew. And uh, in order to come to the United States, to New York, uh, you had to cross France. It was legal to leave France without papers, cross Spain, and take a boat in Portugal. Fortunately, and she always liked to speak about Fortuna her luck, and she had good luck. And she arrived in this country, in New York, in the spring of 1941. Almost... A, a, Hannah Arendt had never been in an English-speaking country before, uh, but almost immediately she began writing articles mainly about uh, Jewish issues and Zionist uh, uh, issues. And some of these early articles, like why uh, <clears throat> about we refugees have now become class classics. And in the uh, early, already, after only being in the country for three years, she submitted a proposal for a manuscript that ultimately became the origins of totalitarianism and was published in 1951. Now, you have to remember that she worked on odd jobs. She was not a university professor, um, and she wrote this book on her own time. But when, she, when the book was published in 51, it became not a bestseller, but it gained her an increasing recognition. And from that on, time on, she went, went on to write a number of extremely important books like The Human Condition, um, On Revolution, um, and then of course in 1963, she wrote the uh, 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 Eichmann in Jerusalem. Now, I wanna mention two major themes that make her such a significant thinker. Um, I should say this, after the Trump election in two, 2016, she virtually went viral. She was all over the social media. Um, and she was also, and is still on a lot of social media. One of the reasons is that she had a remarkable insight into tendencies uh, towards fascism, authoritarianism, that are very much still with us. Um, she spoke of the time as dark times. And when she spoke about dark times, she wasn't referring exclusively to totalitarianism. Let me give you a brief description of dark times because you'll see how relevant it is. She wrote the following. She said, if the function of the public realm is to light on the affairs of men, by providing a space of appearance in which they can show in deed and word, for better or for worse, who they are and what they can do, then darkness has come when the light is extinguished by credibility gaps and invisible government, by speech that's not, that does not disclose but sweeps it under the carpet, by exhortations, moral and otherwise, that under the pretext of, pretext of holding old truths to grade all truth into meaningless trivialities. 
Well, that's a perfect description of what began to happen dramatically after the uh, Trump uh, election. She understood how propaganda works. She understood why people are not always interested in the true facts. What they want is a story that speaks to their anxieties, uh, even if it is not true. So the idea of alternative facts was not a surprise to her. It's something that she anticipated that could happen and could happen again. At the end of her book on totalitarianism, she wrote that even though that totalitarian regimes have disappeared, meaning Hitler and Stalin, totalitarian methods will be with us. And the, you know, when people cannot deal uh, intelligently with uh, human affairs, and we see how much of those techniques are still with us, not only lies, not only uh, trying to distort facts or to make facts to all opinion, but in the torture. I don't know, some of you may have read recent military judges, you know, uh, sharp critique of the use of torture in this, in this country. So look, you know, the slogan after the Second World War was never again, but since then we've seen torture, we've seen genocides, We've seen all kinds, and we, what we also have seen that our rent understood is the increasing number of millions of refugees. But it's not only for the darkness that I think that she's famous for. There's another side to Arendt. Arendt was a deep believer in what she called new beginnings. She had a technical word that she used for that, which was natality, but she thought that if people come together and act. They can power, empowerment can grow and they can create something new. This is a very deep theme in rent. She saw that this uh, coming together, and she sometimes called it the revolutionary spirit, is something that happened over and over again in history. I mean, in other words, she would have understood. She died before something like solidarity movement in uh, Poland, but you would have understood how people sitting around a kitchen beginning to talk, that it could grow into a movement that became nonviolent and that would over, ultimately overthrow uh, uh, communism. So she was a great advocate of the revolutionary spirit. The truth is she was also uh, had a strong positive view about the, what she called the American Revolution. But how the American Revolution was not primarily what we call the American Revolution. What happened in 1776, it would happen after. How people created themselves a new constitution, a new republic, something that had never existed before. She thought this was a fantastic achievement and she praised it, although she was always double-edged. She was critical because she thinks that soon after the Constitution was written, there was a kind of forgetfulness and a failure to create the kinds of institutions in which people could participate and be free itself. So that Arendt is, um, I, I'll tell just a little anecdote of how this book ought to be read, because um, I was speaking to my editor shortly after uh, Trump got elected, when her name was all the social media, and he turned to me, and he said, why don't you write a little book 
about why read a, why read Hunter read now, and that is the title of my book. I wrote it for people who are intelligent, who are not professionals, who are interested in Hunter rent and want to know something of her main ideas. And I'm enormously pleased to say that of all the things I've ever written, this is really the most popular book translated now into many, many uh, different languages because I do think that she is a thinker that speaks to many people. I think I'm going to end my remarks here. I'm happy to answer any questions about Hannah Arendt, about totalitarianism, about the Eichmann book, uh, about her views on Zionism, whatever you want to ask me. Okay? Perfect. Thank you. Dick, I wanted to uh, just, I just wanted to compare uh, Hannah Arendt's experience with my own family's escape uh, from, from Germany as well. So, um, my grandparents escaped uh, from Austria and ended up in France at the same time as, uh, as Hannah Arendt. And when the war started, they got put in one of the same camps. Um, they were in Nimes uh, in 1940 when the, when the Germans invaded. And uh, Hannah Arendt uh, found the good graces of a fellow by the name of Varian Fry, who was able to provide them with papers um, and Varian Fry had, uh, was working uh, for a group to help uh, Jewish intellectuals escape from, uh, from Europe. Uh, they, they saved Arendt, they saved um, uh, Marc Chagall, uh, Chagall the, uh, the painter, and others. Yeah. Um, my grandparents and my mother escaped uh, over the Pyrenees as well and out, of, out through Portugal. Uh, but a little later, they left in January 1943. And I think what's interesting about Arendt is it's clear that having to run from the Nazis uh, all over Europe did affect her thinking greatly. And so my first question for you is, um, as she, uh, it, she was on an eight-year escape uh, to run away from the Nazis, how do you yeah. think that very... Um, physical movement of her affected her philosophy and her fears as it went through her writings. Yeah, I think what's it, I mean, it's uh, interesting that you have grandparents had a very similar experience. It had a deep effect. First of all, when she was in Germany, she said what really distressed her was not her enemies. They all had enemies. But when they saw that their friends and other people were going along with the Nazis, she became almost, she actually made a decision she was, that she was going to leave intellectual life. When she went to France, she said, you know, this is what she said, when you're attacked as a Jew, you fight back as a Jew, not as a German, not as a world citizen, etc. And she, when she went to France, she said she wanted to do only practical work. She actually worked for the organization called Youth Aliyah that sent uh, young uh, uh, Jewish adolescents to Palestine. Um, and, you know, many people think that she was primarily a university professor. She was not. She was an independent person. She was an independent thinker uh, in that time. So I think the whole experience of the... Not the rise of the Nazis and her experiences, uh, even as a stateless Jew, I mean, she deeply shaped her, her thinking and the influence of that period 
is all of her work. Remember, she was not in a she was not in a concentration camp. She was not sent to be exterminated. She, in fact, she made this. And this is something about also Arendt, a wonderful irony. When she wrote the article, uh, "Why We Have Refugees," she says, "You know, we Jews are now a new being, a new type of human being. Our enemies put us in concentration camps." Our friends put us in intern camps. And that was a kind of telling remark about the Germans and the French. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, that later the, the French would hand the refugee Jews off to the Nazis and off they went to Auschwitz. So it's just a internment camp was a holding pen, if you will. Um, you also Let me just interrupt you. you also just, I want to interrupt yeah, you for one minute because I think there's another significant event that I only much later came to understand. The women who did not escape from the internment camp by uh, girls who stayed there were ultimately sent to Auschwitz by Adolf Eichmann. And I think that Arendt never forgot that. If she hadn't escaped, she could have been sent off to Auschwitz. For sure. Um, you mentioned that what really surprised her when she was in Germany was that her friends went along with the Nazis. Um, and the most famous friend was also her lover and teacher, uh, the philosopher Martin uh, Heidegger. How do you think about um, that relationship, why she really never turned on him despite his, uh, his support of the Nazi party and uh, how, how she thought about that problem? Yeah, the first thing to recognize is this is that when she had her affair with Heidegger, she was 18 or 19. This is, and it's before Heidegger showed any inclination of sympathy with the Nazis. It's much more to be put in the character, uh, in, in the characterization that we know all too well in this country. Of a, uh, a young student is infatuated with professor. Heidegger had a wife and two children at that time. Um, uh, when she she then after a year or two this of uh, this relationship she left uh, Heidelberg and she did not have any contact with Heidegger until 1949, which is the first time that she ever went back to Germany. Um, many people are really sort of perplexed by she condemned so many other people. Why she never publicly condemned Heidegger for his uh, role in the Nazi party. I mean, that's something that, uh, I mean, you might say, I mean, it's true that Heidegger was the great love of her life. She thought that Heidegger was the greatest philosophy of the time, but even though she could be sharply critical of all kinds of people, she never publicly criticized Heidegger. That's the facts. Then you have to draw your pieces. Well, what conclusion do you draw from that? I really think, I mean, uh, it, this would take a long time so i i think of it as a certain type of blindness and i think that you know you have, look this is interesting when after 49 they corresponded you know uh they renewed the correspondence she kept all his letters and she not only kept his letters at a bedside she, before she died she gave them to an archive so she knew that this would someday be revealed i mean i think you I mean, I do not have the full answer, but I think it has to do with matters of the heart, that somehow he was special, and that Hunter Arendt, like anybody else, 
had all blindnesses, you know. Uh, she did, but it was so interesting is that in the period where she had no contact, she actually called him a murderer. You know, she was very, very critical of Heidegger. But she went to Freiburg where he was teaching. He sent her a note. They met, and that was the start of a of their friendship, uh, their renewed friendship, which I think is, uh, to me, a bit of a blight on the life of uh, Hunter Arendt. All right, let's uh, go next to um, her book on Eichmann and the Eichmann trial, which was entitled um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Um, So uh, this book um, was extremely controversial. It was controversial uh, primarily because um, of reviews about both Eichmann and about the trial itself. And so um, maybe I'll start with the trial. And she, uh, she condemned the kidnapping of Eichmann and then bringing him to Israel to have what she referred to as a show trial in the Soviet style, where the evidence um, was um, not limited to his own actions, but more generally to the Holocaust itself. And she really had it in for the prosecutor uh, of, of the trial who she uh, made particular fun of. Why do you think, um, or how do you, how do you make sense of her views related to the kidnapping of Eichmann? I mean, when Eichmann, when Ben-Gurion went to the Knesset um, to announce that they had kidnapped uh, Eichmann and he was coming to Israel, it received a complete standing ovation and it was worldwide news uh, that, that this, uh, horrible Nazi was going to be brought to justice. Why did she view this process as being so problematic? Uh, I think that what you've said is just slightly misleading uh, because ultimately she justified the kidnapping. She justified that he should be brought to Israel. She justified the fact that he should be, that there was, she argued against those people who said that the Israeli court could not be making an objective judgment. So in the end, and in the end, what's so interesting, she even justified some crucial statements of the final uh, verse about it. So it's not completely accurate to say that she condemned all this and this. I think she was extremely hostile to the she felt strongly. If you're bringing an individual to a trial, it's the individual that is on trial not the whole of the history of anti-Semitism, not everything that happened in the Holocaust itself. And it was clear that, whether you call it a, a uh, show trial or not, Ben-Gurion, and particularly the prosecutor, you know, wanted to make this a public statement about the history of anti-Semitism in, uh, in the world. In fact, he begins his prosecution by going all the way back to, to Haman, uh, and Jesus is the culmination of anti-Semitism. She thought, you know, and it's true, if you consider what any kind of criminal trial normally is, most of what all of that trial was simply irrelevant. I'll give you one beautiful illustration. At a certain time, the, uh, uh, the diaries and notebooks of Hans Frank were introduced as evidence. He was the governor of Poland that was overseeing Auschwitz and so forth. 
And at one point, he or at least the defense was not a very strong defender of Eichmann. He asked a simple question. Is the name Eichmann mentioned once in all those documents? And the answer was no. But that was, I mean, it became, it was very dramatic. You know, this was on TV. It was very moving for lots of people to hear the stories. And this was deliberate. Ben Gurion wanted the world to know what really happened to Jews, and he also wanted Israelis to know, because there had been a myth in Israel. Well, the Holocaust just went to their gas chambers, you know, uh, innocently. He, and he wanted the Israelis to know the horror of what actually had taken place at that particular time. And it became a very significant event in Israel itself. Yeah. Um, let me I try a, a different... Let me jump. I'll tell you what, I mean, and it's true. She's absolutely right. There were all kinds of myths about the book that she exonerated the uh, Eichmann, that she blamed the Jews uh, for being uh, the victims that had to do with some of the sections on uh, the Jewish councils. I think that of this, that one of the main reasons why there was such a strong reaction to this book, you have to remember that up until the 60s, the Holocaust was barely a topic of discussion, any place except for professionals, is because people like to think when you come to good and evil, there are the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys are sadist, they're vicious, they're malicious, etc. That's the way in which we think about it. We think about good and evil the way we think about Westerns. We think about good and evil the way we thought about uh, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. We are the good guys and we're going to get them better or worse. And I think that her deepest message, if you want to think seriously about evil in the 20th century, those terms are too simplistic. They are completely simplistic about what actually happens to people in uh, such a situation. And, but people don't want to hear that. They want to hear that he's vicious, that he's a, a sadistic and so forth. And uh, she was saying, that's not what he was. You know, I, you know I'm not, I don't want to completely exonerate her description of like because I don't think it's completely right. But I think this deep conceptual point that people really always like to think of these as absolutely anticipated, no questions asked, that's not the way most evil, in fact, she said at one point, most evil in this world is committed by people who don't think they're committing evil. That's not a message people like to hear. All right, let's use that as a, as a segue to talk about her most famous expression of her, probably of her professional career, which is the banality of evil. Yeah. Um, how do you think about whether or not that was an accurate depiction of Eichmann? Why did this become uh, the apocalypse uh, quote of hers? Uh, how should we think about that as a concept, independent of Eichmann? I think I think it was a mistake to use that term because it has been completely systematically misinterpreted. It was interpreted as her saying that the Holocaust and the murder of Jews were simply fatal. She never said that, and that was not her point. Her point was something different, is that her understanding of Eichmann is that he was a careerist. He was a bureaucrat. If there hadn't been a, a, uh, a Nazi era, you know, he might have been, 
either successful or a failure as a middle manager. He was more concerned with his career. He was more concerned with advancing himself. So the banality of evil refers to his intentions. His intentions were not that he was a, uh, a by her view, a systematically Jew hater. He, you know, his he wanted to succeed. It was wonderful wearing that uniform. That that uniform. Uh, that the uniform. It was wonderful having all that kind of uh, power. And so that his motives were banal, you know, um, in the way she put it, like Pocota. The deeds were monstrous. The man was not a monster. You know, she um, she traveled to uh, Jerusalem. She uh, participated in the trial for, um, I think, under a week. And a little bit she, she, yeah, like four yeah. days or something. And, you know, it was a contemporaneous account uh, of the trial and a contemporaneous view on the evidence that was provided. Um, since then, there have been a number of biographies uh, uh, on Eichmann. Um, the most uh, important, I think, is by this woman, Bettina uh, Stengdeff. Uh, and the book is yes. called Eichmann Before Jerusalem, which plays on Hannah Arendt's book title, The Unexamined Life of a Mass Murderer. And what Bettina did is she was able to get access to Eichmann's uh, recordings and writings that he did while he lived uh, as in Argentina. And what came across from that was that uh, Arendt's description of this careerist um, and not really a Jew hater, maybe misleading that he in fact uh, was a Jew hater, had worked very, uh, very hard to achieve uh, the, the death of millions of Jews. Um, how do you think about whether her historical analysis uh, or uh, psychological analysis of Eichmann holds up with the current uh, thinking of biographers and analysis of Eichmann himself? Yeah, I myself have gone through all this literature. And I know what he's talking about, and I know what Eichmann did in in Argentina. So I think, I mean, let me just say this. So I think that Arendt was wrong, although she had a lot of, sometimes she has insights into it, that he was much more vicious, much more proud of his anti-Semitism uh, than she acknowledged. So he wasn't simply a careerist in it. I sometimes think that Eichmann was like, um, like the movie, the Woody Allen movie, A Zealot Figure. And if thrown into a situation where you ought to be a vicious anti-Semite, that's what you do. If you're thrown into a trial where you're supposed to be a moderate person, that's what you do. That he had no depth to him whatsoever. So I want to say this. If you're going to argue simply on the historical grounds that uh, I think that Arendt uh, gives too favorable a portrait of Eichmann. But I think there are two issues the historical issues, about which I think there are a lot of questions, and what I call the conceptual issue. The conceptual issue, can people do horrendous evil deeds out of banal motivations? And I think that the answer is yes, and I think that we see that all the time uh, in, in our life. So I think that I would say, I would give her, you know, critical of her on the exact historical, but that's, people don't go further. But she's making another point about the motivations for doing evil. And here I think she's profoundly uh, right, you know. 
You know, I, I, I remember when I when Abu Bray became so popular and everybody was blaming the immediate people. You know, people weren't blaming our administration. They weren't blaming Rumsford. But those are the people who created the conditions for the possibility of something like that was happening. And they could say, oh, we didn't intend any kind of evil, but you created the conditions in which this could happen. So that's why I think the concept is an interesting concept, even though the judgment of Eichmann historically is not accurate. I want to go to your last point about creating uh, evil out of an opportunity. Um, yeah. And I think uh, one of the great moral questions we face is what would we do if um, you get in these very strange situations? I mean, Eichmann is given the opportunity to, uh, to lead the mass, ma- the mass murder of a people. And he yeah. takes it by the horns and rides with it as best he can. I think a lot of people, when offered the chance to lead a, a genocide, might want to pass, uh, may not want to choose that, uh, make that decision, maybe even commit suicide or run. Um, yeah. why, why are you giving Eichmann a, a bit of a pass or that you know, he was just an opportunist? Well, an opportunist in the most horrible of ways. Shouldn't we judge a man yeah. when you have an opportunity to do bad things that you choose not to do it? No, wait a minute. Or do it with a zeal? Yeah, well, I object to what you said is giving him a pass. I don't think she you was giving him a pass because the main all positive argument is, you know, she called him the greatest, one of the greatest criminals of all time. He was responsible for what he did. He could have done otherwise. And we know there's plenty of evidence that there were many, many Nazis who were asked to do awful things who didn't want to do them, and they were not penalized. So that I think the main issue is responsibility. Responsibility is that he had the opportunity, he could have been asked to be transferred to a different division. He could have done all sorts of things. And so you can't get him off the hook for being responsible for what he did because we know there were other people in analogous situations who refused to participate and were not necessarily penalized. It's so interesting that uh, there's a book by Christopher Browning who shows um, many people who asked to murder Jews in Eastern Europe. There were a number who refused to do it. They were not punished. They got away with it. So he had he had choice, and he bears responsibility for what she, he did. And I'm with Hodorant on that particular point. Maybe I would tread on similar ground. Um, I think one of the things that really shocked uh, Arendt when he, she went to the trial was Eichmann's use of language and his constant use of cliches. And she said, oh, yeah. my God, this guy's just an idiot. And I think that's what really got under her skin. This guy's like a halfwit. Um, yes. I, I can't yes. believe... I can't believe that someone who speaks like this, someone who thinks like this, could be so successful at killing millions of people. I mean, how is that even possible? And I wonder if, um, yes, it's true, Eichmann spoke in cliches and was incoherent. Uh, one of the things that he mentions uh, in her book is the first thing, uh, it's 
we're an hour before Eichmann's execution. And yeah. uh, he says something like, um, the first thing he says is, I don't believe in an afterlife. And then a half an hour later, he says, I will see you in the next life. It's like he, he couldn't even get that straight in his last couple of moments. Um, you realize, how do you think? I, just, uh, I want to interrupt you on that. That's the only time in the book she speaks about the banality of evil. That, that was seen to her utterly about here. He is professing this long live Germany. I'll see you all after, you know, and she thought that summed up the whole thing. But the truth is it's the only time in the entire book that she uses the word banality. Okay, continue. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, I was just thinking, um, was she, was she, did she misunderstand Eichmann's, um, poor language skills, uh, to miss his, uh, management talents and his, his ability to manage bureaucracy, um, and his evil intent to succeed in this endeavor is did or is at the heart of, of this whole concept is it's really not about Eichmann himself but the evils yeah. of bureaucracy in general. The bureaucracies yeah. work their petty sort of ways to achieve whatever the objective of the leaders are. I think that, you know, what uh, is, I mean, you know, how positive explanation is, and it sounds odd to an American ear, is what she calls his thoughtlessness. That he was so caught up in his cliches he was so caught up in bureaucratic uh, langu- language that he had the inability really to think about what, I mean, look, we, by the way, we know he was a master bureaucrat. He was very successful in sending millions of people, organizing the transportation to send them to the various camps. So he wasn't stupid. He was very a, a very sophisticated bureaucrat, but that's different from thinking about what you're doing and coming to understand it. And the way she liked to put it, he simply lacked the imagination to enter into the kinds of minds of the victims that were being murdered and when he sent them in those trains, you know. So that's, I think, our point. She calls it thoughtlessness, yeah. It was his inability to think. And she didn't mean to inability to think like a bureaucrat, but it was to stop and think what you're doing. English expression, you love that English expression, stop and think. Eichmann, for his heart, like many, many bureaucrats, do not stop and think what it is that they really are doing. They just do it automatically. Yeah. One last question on the word banality for a second. And that was, you're, you know, you're right. Let's say she just uses it once in the book, but she also uses it in her title. I mean, she calls it a report on the banality of evil. You can't miss it. It's, you know, it was, it's as if the whole book had come to that one point and bang, she slams it home with that. Um, yeah. Do you not view that as the, as the core essence of the entire book? No, I do not look at it as the essence of the book. And it's a very interesting historical fact. Much earlier, with a great teacher, Carl Yosters, she had a uh, discussion about Nazi crimes. And she was arguing that Nazi crimes are crimes which are beyond any kind of normal crimes and so forth. And Eustace chided her. And he said, this is, uh, you know, uh, 
20, 25 years before she used the expression, she said, you know, if you're going to understand, you have to understand banality in all, uh, evil in all its banality. It's like a fungus that can spread throughout the world. And I think that that's the view that you really, that's another aspect of the banality. It's not something big. It's not something deep. It's not something, it's on the surface. And it spreads like a fungus and can do a terrible damage. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say that, oh, the whole thing is really just about the banality of evil. I think there's so much more about human nature, the failures of human nature, the, uh, the, the failures uh, that the attempt that we've always wanted to use simplistic categories to understand difficult events where they don't work, uh, and that you have to understand the complexity of what's really going on, particularly, I think, in the uh, after totalitarianism. Okay. You cannot think about evil as, as, as Bush once wanted to put it when he was talking about how to say, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and we're going to get the bad guys, like the old Western uh, type of thinking. That's the way people want to think about evil. It's just completely inappropriate, the way really evil really works. I think that's something I want to emphasize. Okay? Yeah. Um, I end each session with a note of optimism. Dick, what are you optimistic about? I am optimistic about what I call the other aspect of Hannah Arendt. I think that one of her great, great messages is that no matter how dark things look, no matter how despairing, you know, they can be, you cannot, and she says it happens sometimes almost like a miracle, that people can come together and change things. And I deeply believe in that message. So I see for example, that the, the time that we're in is a very dark time. I think the probability is that America is going to be succeeded, the high probability, by a fascist state. And that's the way it looks. I mean, it, indeed, if you look at all that information that was revealed about Trump just before the, I mean, he really wanted a coup. And who knows, next time there could be a, a coup. But the other side is there is the possibility, not the necessity, that people will say no, and we'll begin to act together and put an end to it. We've seen this happen here. I'll give a very good example. It's not comparable, but it's an example. I lived through the McCarthy period. And when you live through the McCarthy period, people thought this was the worst that America is ever going to receive, uh, see. But what's so fascinating about McCarthy is how it ended. You know, the question, have you no sense of decency? And within a short period, I think America came to the senses and realized what a terrible demagogue he was. Something like this could happen again, although I make no predictions. But that's what, I, if you ask about optimism, I wouldn't put it as optimistic, but hopeful that somehow we'll get out of this mess of polarization, that people will realize that we're destroying democracy, that, people, that there will be a return to a certain amount of compromise and civility. We've seen it before in this country. Why not again? Okay. Dick, thank you so much. That was wonderful. All right. Yeah. We're going to go on to our second speaker, and that is Mark Mahaney. Mark Mahaney, he's a senior managing director at Evercore, and he's also the head of Internet Research. Mark is a five-time number one ranked institutional investor 
in the internet equity analyst space. Uh, we met Mark previously on what happens next when he discussed various internet stocks such as Amazon and Spotify. I've asked Mark to join us again because he's publishing a new book to be released November 9th entitled Nothing But Net about how to invest in tech and growth stocks. All right, Larry. Um, uh, thank you very much for having me on, uh, and it's nice to, to reconnect. I really wanted to talk about Nothing But Net. Um, that's a book I've got coming out uh, November 9th, already available for pre-order at your favorite online bookstores. What led me to write this uh, book is that I've seen a mistake made over and over again. It is the uh, impetus to trade rather than to invest in high-quality tech stocks. Uh, I tried to put together uh, 10 lessons from both the big wins and the big losses in the consumer Internet space. Have there been big wins? Absolutely. Uh, Facebook's over up over 100% since its IPO. Google's up over 3,000%. Netflix up over 45,000% since its IPO. And wait for it, Amazon's up over 160,000% since its IPO. So there have been some phenomenal uh, wins in here, some phenomenal successes. But there have also been some phenomenal blow-ups. Zulily or uh, Blue Apron or uh, names that are even better known, Groupon. But you could also look at the kind of the failed opportunity of eBay, Yahoo, and even AOL Time Warner. I think there are lessons from both of the successes and the failures in the group. I'm the oldest and uh, longest lasting Internet analyst on the street. Uh, and so uh, with plenty of mistakes along the way, uh, you know, if you're picking stocks, it's an odds business. You're going to make uh, plenty of mistakes, and I try to learn from those too. So I go through these 10 lessons in the book. Uh, first is, if you look at it from a long-term perspective, over the last 5, 10, even 20 years, we've been in a very consistent uh, bull market, especially since uh, you know, 2008, 2009. I want to start off with the warnings, which is that there will be blood or you can lose a lot of money when you pick uh, the bad stock. In the book, I go through the examples of Blue Apron and Groupon. Groupon's down about 93% since its IPO. But I do try to remind people, you know, Google Groupon at the time of its IPO way back in 2011 was a guaranteed sure thing. All that's in, in quotes. This was a company that had rebuffed a $6 billion offer from uh, Google, had an, a business model that was so innovative there were hundreds of copycat uh, imitators and was the fastest company to reach a billion revenue run rate in history. Like, wow, what could go wrong? Well, a lot of things went wrong, and there are lessons in there, particularly in terms of the quality of the management team. I think that was really the big Achilles heel. And lesson number two, even if you get the best companies, even if you pick the best stocks, you can still lose money from time to time. Even the best-in-class stocks aren't immune from major sell-offs. The companies that I think are just phenomenal outperformers and that objectively have been over the last uh, two, five, ten years, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, they've all suffered corrections that have ranged from 20 to 44%. Like Either that's because of massive sell-off in NASDAQ at the end of 2018 or for company missteps. I always refer to the Facebook faceplant when in the middle of 2018 in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, you had a 43% correction in Facebook stock because Facebook Facebook uh, reacted aggressively to that scandal by uh, massively increasing its uh, operating expense uh, spend uh, and warning the street about uh, revenue, uh, material revenue deceleration. This lesson uh, is even the best can suck at times. That's a 
Third is don't play quarters. Stay focused on the long time, long term and ignore short-term stock price fluctuations. I think they're so hard to do. It's almost a fool's errand because you've got to match fundamentals and expectations, and it's a very hard combo to get uh, right. Invest in, invest in the high-quality assets. Lesson number four, revenue matters more than anything. I've become a very die-in-the-wool fundamentalist when I think about tech stocks and growth stocks. I have found that the stocks follow fundamentals. When it comes to growth and high-tech uh, stocks that matter the most are revenue, revenue, and revenue. I love this example of Netflix. Over the course of the decade, 2000, uh, 2010 to 2019, Netflix as a stock was the single best-performing S&P 500 stock over that time period, up almost 2,000%. Yet free cash flow, what happened to it? It deteriorated dramatically. The free cash flow burn went from like 20 million loss in 2013 to over 3 billion in 2019. Free cash flow burn continued to worsen each and every year. There was a massive disconnect between the stock and the free cash flow. Where was the connect? The connect was with the revenue growth. The company was able to sustain pretty much 30% streaming revenue growth for almost a decade. That's what the market bid up. And the company was also acceler- was able to accelerate its net subscriber additions almost every single year. Yes, of course, earnings matter, but the leading indicators Revenue growth and sub-ads, and especially if you can find these companies that can do these wonderful things like maintain 20% revenue growth. It's one of the markers I look for for uh, high-quality names. And I'm talking about doing that from scale, from a couple of billion in revenue. It's a very hard thing to do. I think (coughs) only about 2% of the S&P 500 is able to consistently do that. I also look for companies that have got what I call GCIs growth curve initiatives, things that companies, and I'll stick with the Netflix example, at the beginning of 2018, revenue growth materially accelerated because they expanded into the Asian markets, because they successfully implemented a dollar price increase, and because they rolled out local original content in the U.S. It was shows like 13 Reasons Why. Overseas, they've had different shows like Casa de Papel, which we all know is uh, Money Heist. So I definitely look for growth curve initiatives and they can get me to that, uh, that 20% revenue growth. Lesson number five, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got a, uh, that product swing. You know, you really want to focus on companies that are, have been successful at product innovations. I mean, companies that have the ability to generate um, uh, uh, numerous uh, successful product innovations, there's usually something in the water there, uh, either the management team or the corporate structure. I know when it comes to investing, past performance is no Uh, No guarantee of future performance. But I don't think that's necessarily true when it comes to management teams and product innovation. Amazon is the wonderful poster child for this point. Here's a company that showed the ability to innovate in at least three dramatically different areas, online retail, cloud computing, and in devices with the Kindle. When you see a company that can do that, and that evidence was clear by about 2007, 2008, there was plenty of investment gains to be made after that and plenty more innovations that came after that. So focus on companies that have got this great uh, product innovation. Uh, Lesson number six uh, was um, the importance of TAMs. Uh, So with TAMs, the bigger, the better. They matter. They can be expanded. They help drive growth. They can lead to scale, and scale wins. And what I particularly like to see are companies with small market shares of large TAMs. I know it sounds simple, but that's what you're looking for. Google, the fact that Google was able to sustain 20% revenue growth for a decade after hitting a $25 billion revenue run rate, a feat that only two other companies in history have ever been able to achieve. The fact that they were able to do that is precisely because for a good chunk of that period, they were a single-digit percentage share owner of a trillion 
dollar TAM, a TTAM as I call it, uh, a um, and and market internet um, a global advertising that's in excess of one trillion. So look for that low penetration uh, big TAMs uh, stories. That's what you want to look for. Lesson number seven is following value prop, not the money. It's com companies with a compelling customer value props that beat the companies with the great business models. Another way to think about this is look to invest in customer-centric ones as opposed to investor-centric ones. Amazon versus eBay, one company that focused on customers, the other focused on investors. eBay used to have the major market cap advantage. It was 6x the market cap of Amazon as late as 2006. Uh, but that all changed because Amazon had a much better customer-consumer value prop when it came to price selection and convenience, and its market cap now is 50x that of eBay's. There's also the example of uh, Grubhub and uh, DoorDash. The first company had a great investor-centric model. The second one had a great consumer-centric model. The latter one now is worth dramatically more than the first one was taken out for. Lesson number eight, management matters uh, uh, an enormous amount. You get the management team, and you'll likely get the stock right. I go through a series of case studies in the book to try to call out a couple of the things we're really looking for as signs of a really good management team. If you work backwards and you look at the largest tech companies in the world, almost all of them are founder-led. So I definitely have a bias towards founder-led companies, companies with long-term orientation, great industry uh, vision. And I also throw in here the point about the cops to be forthright with employees and investors about mistakes and challenges. I'm a big fan of Uber. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the next um, uh, stocks, major uh, tech stocks that could get a lot bigger. Like I, th I still think that can go up something like 10x in uh, market cap you know, over a five to 10 year period, which is a huge increase. And one of the reasons is I've got a fair amount of confidence in the CEO. Now he's not the founder, so ding, ding the stock for that. But he's got a very good track record with me in terms of being very upfront when Expedia during the great financial crisis, Starakaz Rashahi was the first and just about the only tech exec I came across who was willing to say that I think his literal expression was it's a dog's breakfast out there. I remember that because I put it in the title of an earnings note and when Dara a decade later became the CEO of Uber, I called that up and I said here's a person who was willing to be right up forthright about when times are tough. This is the kind of person you want uh, running a business because times did get tough for Uber. It turned out uh, just a year and a half later with COVID. Um, uh, and then uh, I'll just uh, finish up with two other points that I detail in the book. Uh, how to handle valuation of um, high growth, high tech stocks. Sometimes it's pretty simple when you get robust earnings like uh, Facebook does, and then there's a debate over whether it should be 18 or 20 or 25 times earnings, but people can reasonably argue over that. In the case of Netflix, you could even argue at 70 times earnings. Uh, Netflix was an attractive, attractively valued stock because for a five-year period, the earnings growth there came closer to 90% uh, year over year. But then I go through the really tough edge cases of what do you do when companies have no earnings. You know, in um, in, uh, in Techland, uh, you're going to come across these examples a lot. There's a good number of the new, for example, NASDAQ listings that are profitless companies. They go through and uh, use this as a screen to decide whether a valuation argument can actually be made. One, are there public companies with similar business models that are already profitable? Two, if the company as a whole isn't profitable, 
Are there segments within the business that are? Three, is there a reason why scale can't drive a business to profitability? And four, are there concrete steps that management can take to drive the company to profitability? If you have a, an unprofitable public company, but that can you can answer yes comfortably to two or three of those uh, questions, you can probably make the valuation argument. And then finally, um, the last lesson it is to hunt for DHQs. Not DQ, that's Dairy Queen. DHQs, dislocated high-quality companies. So what I've tried to do is summarize in the book through these different chapters what are high-quality companies that have this premium revenue growth, that 20% revenue growth tick, uh, companies that have large TAMs, relentless product, relentless and successful product innovation, compelling customer value props, and great management. And then buying them when they're dislocated, that allows you to minimize valuation risk. So what's a dislocated stock? One that's traded off 20 to 30% or stocks that are trading at a discount to their growth rates. And what I found in, this, um, in the last you know, 25 years of covering these companies that dislocation happens to the best stocks. Those FANG stocks, they've all had their share, fair share of dislocations. I have not yet seen a high-quality company that didn't dislocate at least once in a year-and-a-half period. So if you can identify the high-quality companies and be patient, those, those dislocation opportunities will come. Take advantage of them. That's the single biggest takeaway from the book, DHQs, Hunt for Dislocated High-Quality Companies. That's it. That's the book, uh, Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock-Picking Lessons from One of Wall Street's Top, uh, top Tech Analysts. My first question relates to your acknowledgement section. You mentioned that one of the reasons you wrote this book was so your son would better understand how to invest. You know, I've got kids, too. Would you recommend this book both for the starting investor as well as for sophisticated investors? Who's the audience for this book? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's both. You know, there was this wonderful book. I'm sure you remember it, uh, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. And I thought that was a Bible for a generation of retail investors and institutional investors. Uh, there was a lot of wisdom that came from somebody who had worked the market so hard for so many uh, years. And he had some wonderful examples. And uh, if you can remember, one thing from that book is it may well be, you know, like the coffee by the stock. That was his uh, approach to Dunkin' Donuts. But I'm trying to provide a framework that can, you can use for the next Facebook, the next Amazon. And I'm sure there will be some, uh, you know, over the next 10 years. I want to ask a question about diversification and investing in tech stocks. You mentioned that there's this battle between eBay and Amazon, and eBay ended up with lower revenue growth and a mediocre stock performance, while Amazon ended up being one of the best performing stocks of all time. Is the moral of the story is that you're supposed to buy both stocks, and one stock will be a dud, and the other will be a fabulous performer, and you don't need to be right predicting in advance which firm will end up dominating the other? I mean, when you get an investment returns like Amazon, who's going to even remember that eBay was a part of your portfolio? And when I look at my own portfolio, there's some duds, sure. There's some that have an average market performance, and then there's just a couple that do spectacularly well. Isn't that true of every portfolio, whether it's in tech or any other industry? I mean, the key is that you've got to make sure you own some high-performing assets more than anything else. Seriously, who cares about eBay? Well, that's a good point. Um, you know, it's good to have diversification, obviously, in the in the portfolio. And um, uh, but the book is really geared on trying to find those Amazons and try to avoid the Ebays. Or you know, eBay was a phenomenal stock, by the way, for the first uh, five years as a public company. Why was it so phenomenal? And then when and then it became a true dud from 2005 to 2015. 
10-year period, eBay stock went nowhere. And the mistake was, this was a company that had a beautiful business model, high gross margins and then high operating margins, but a value proposition that was pretty checked. Amazon started to gain, and uh, its value proposition to the customers, you can buy something and then we'll get it to you in a week, a uh, week and a half. That wasn't nearly as compelling as a company like Amazon that invested an enormous amount of money in building out a logistics network that would get you product within three days, then two, then one, and now same day. I mean, what you want to find are the companies that are the most consumer-centric. You're, you're, you're looking for that winner. You know, the, the false read was to stick with the high-margin business rather than go after the small, um, the, the low margin business. One of the, one of the, one of the most uh, prominent portfolio managers on Wall Street stopped me in the elevator in 2000, pointed his finger at me and said, you know Amazon's never going to make any money. Now, Amazon's on track to be the largest generator of free cash flow in the world. So, you know, with scale, uh, scale doesn't solve all problems, but darn, it certainly uh, uh, solves a lot of problems. I want to just drill down a little bit more on that classic Amazon quote because that um, that uh, institutional investor who you met in the elevator was not alone. That was a very common yeah. thought that uh, Amazon one would not make money, and second that they were making um, they were using their free cash flow to invest in capex and businesses that they, that investors suspected had uh, little return to it. And now you're saying in retrospect, oh my God, these investments were just you know, out of the park successes. Um, people really questioned the you know, same day uh, or or prime two day uh, delivery systems because um, getting that right, getting that investment decision right, was the crux of the matter. And and why do you have such confidence that Bezos could do that so consistently? No, and, and uh, you know, Larry, you're asking a question, a great question. Uh, last thing I want to do is f- uh, fall into the trap of the narrative fallacy. You know, to create the narrative to to explain the events that um, happened in the past. It wasn't preordained that Amazon would be as successful as it was, and Bezos would be as successful as uh, as he he has been. I want to be really clear about that. Um, you know, anybody who you know went all in on Amazon and its IPO, I mean, you know. Good to, good to you, uh, but there was an enormous amount of luck. But there was a point in Amazon's history when it when it, that went from being a speculative investment to this is a high quality name that we want to buy when it's dislocated. The question is when was that point in its history? My personal opinion is that that was around that two, 2006 when the company really showed how innovative it could be. Why? That's when the Kindle came out. Even better, that's when AWS or cloud computing came out. And when you had a management team that could successfully innovate in a dramatically different business, that's that should have been the tell that there was something truly special there. And I know the stock had already run up there, but but that's all right. The stock had plenty of room to go after 2006. The, um, I think the prime was described by Amazon management as the best customer loyalty program in history. Market first was negative on it because of the losses associated with it. But you know, a year or two later, it was clear that Amazon Prime was growing at an accelerated rate, uh, and um, and that led to more satisfied customers, more spend per customer. Then you, so when you realize that the company had also not only had great product innovation, but had great uh, customer loyalty programs, i.e., was really focused on uh, customer satisfaction. That was probably another uh, really good uh, uh, tell for a company that should have gone from being one of your potentially a speculative investment to being a um, you know a core high quality growth slash tech uh, investment and in part of your portfolio. 
I want to apply the lessons from your book to a sample stock, and let's use Spotify. I know from our previous conversation that this is one of your favorite stock picks, and you currently have a buy recommendation on it. Could you discuss Spotify as it applies to lesson number four, Revenue Matters? Lesson number five, does Spotify have that product swing? And lesson six, how do you think about Spotify's TAM, or its total addressable market, defined as its industry annual total sales for its product segment? And finally, does Spotify's revenue growth and its industry market size justify Spotify's market valuation? You know, this is a company, is it a high quality, it's certainly dislocated. Uh, this stock has traded off well over 30% from uh, highs. And what was that product innovation on the part of Spotify? They brought in podcasting uh, and included that in the mix, uh, which therefore made the service more compelling to consumers. They really showed great industry vision. They did it right when podcasting started hitting critical mass. So to me, they kind of check the box when it comes to product innovation. When it comes to management, this is a founder-led uh, company. Uh, and uh, it, we've, I've done enough work around uh, the management team to know that you know this is a company that really thinks long term has had great industry vision. The TAM, uh, you know, the way we looked at the TAM is uh, we thought it was excess of 100 billion. Now it's not a T TAM, it's not a trillion dollar TAM, but it's one that's in excess of 100 billion and uh, one therefore which the company only has a single digit percentage share of. So that's one of those relatively large TAM, small penetration. I like the um, I like the uh, the setup there. And in terms of the customer value proposition, that kind of that's the fourth screen I look at, um, you know, I think the value proposition is uh, pricing power. When companies raise prices and customers stick, churn doesn't get elevated, that means that customer value proposition is super strong. Amazon's done that. They've raised the price of Prime three times over the 18 years that Prime's been out. Netflix has done this numerous times over the year. shows you how strong that value proposition is. And Spotify has now done it for the first time. Uh, first time ever, they started uh, raising uh, fees at the end of last year, coming into this year, and churn has continued to come down. Also, when you just step back and think about it, you know the, those things that we all carry around—they're not phones. They're they're music devices. They are social media devices, and you can pretty much be certain that just about every smartphone in the world has some sort of music app on its home screen. This is something that is just widely, broadly. Um, endorsed, engaged, adopted by uh, consumers uh, globally. So yeah, that's how we came up with a over $100 billion market. Now then what about the 20% uh, revenue growth? The company has been pretty consistently uh, printing revenue growth around that uh, level, and we think given the low penetration and the large TAM that they can continue to do that for several more years. You've got a stock that's dislocated. That's, that's the pitch on uh, Spotify. Spotify's revenues have been growing at 20% since 2018, but is it profitable? No. Its EBIT has consistently been negative. In 2018, the company's EBIT was negative $43 million. In 2019, it was minus 73, and in 2020, it was negative 293. And the Bloomberg forecast for 2021 is minus 90. Spotify is currently trading at 4.7 times current sales. Here we've got a company with negative earnings, trading for almost five times sales, how do we think about this as a value proposition? And when you have a valuation of around 40 billion bucks, and you're thinking about the TAM, the total size of its addressable market of around 100 billion, so Spotify's market cap is 40% of its TAM, using 100 billion as your number. How do you think about market cap as a percentage of its total addressable market? You're asking some really great 
uh, probing questions. You know, another way I think about it is I look at the market cap of, say, a Netflix. Uh, Netflix now is doing almost $300 billion market cap. Spotify is a fix for that. Um, and I think, well, what's the end use case here? It's people um, having entertainment options on their phone, whether it's watching video or listening to music. The subscription fee prices, by the way, aren't dramatically different. The real difference between these uh, is, um, isn't so much the TAM or the consumer use case. It's the gross margin setups because uh, the suppliers are much more concentrated with music, i.e. with the big powerful labels than they are with um, uh, with uh, with uh, with video, with uh, you know uh, produced uh, film and, and and series. That's really the big difference. But it's not enough, I don't think, to warrant that kind of uh, market cap difference uh, between the two. The company isn't profitable. Then I get to those four logic questions. Well, is there any particular reason why scale over time doesn't help drive them to profitability? And I think the answer is no. There's nothing in particular that structurally uh, stops from doing that. And by the way, sort of like Netflix, I mean, we lived through this. Netflix um, had no leverage with the studios, much smaller studios, or with artists uh, when they first got into original content uh, seven years ago. Uh, but now Netflix, uh, it's become a must-shop uh, destination for content creators. That's what allowed it. Um, uh, so it, that's what allowed it to gain leverage uh, in terms of its uh, uh, streaming costs. And I think the same actually can happen with uh, Spotify over time. Also, as you become bigger, you become a platform. You can layer in more revenue streams. Um, uh, uh, advertising, one of the advantages of podcasting, by the way, this is very specific to Spotify, and. Um, is that uh, podcasting, the ad revenue associated with podcasting isn't shared with the labels. So as podcasting grows, as ad revenue around podcasting grows, that's going to help the gross margins at uh, a name like um, uh, Spotify. So that, those are kind of a couple of points I'd give you on, uh, on Spotify. Yeah, it's hard to, um, it's hard to be exact uh, when you look at these names about uh, what, the, what the right valuation is. I, I would want, especially when they're pre um, uh, especially when they're pre-profits or they're very slim in the profits. Uh, and I think the point I try to get across here is you, know, you want to avoid uh, precision traps. What you're looking to try to figure out is, is the valuation ballpark reasonable? Uh, let the good be, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good because you know, valuation is always based on um, uh, future forecast and you know, you, uh, we're all as good as each other in terms of predicting the future, i.e. it's not predictable. Lesson seven is the customer proposition. And using Amazon as an example, the customer proposition is unbelievable. I mean, Amazon offers customers an incredible product selection, anything they want at a reasonable price, delivered in a day or two. I mean, amazing. But when I think about the customer proposition for Spotify, I'm a little bit baffled. We're having this conversation on my podcast. I publish this podcast on Spotify, but I own it, and I choose it to give it to Spotify for free, which obviously is a good deal for them. But what it what is it that Spotify offers its customers? It's offering a platform to listen to music and podcasts. Sure, it owns some of the podcasts, but it doesn't own most of them. And the music, as you pointed out, the music recording industry does. What is Spotify's customer proposition that is so compelling to you? The world's music library personalized on your device whenever you want it. Now, that's also offered by other companies. Um, 
Okay, in the past, Pandora, although Spotify's global Pandora's had very uh, uh, limited success outside of the U.S. Apple Music, although that's not available on a majority of the world's phones because Apple devices are a small uh, are a minority of the world's uh, phones. It's an Android world, not an Apple world. But that's that's Spotify's advantage. That uh, the basic value per proposition of music streaming. All right, let's move on to Uber. Pre-COVID, Uber had an incredible product. For a relatively cheap price, they will pick you up using your smartphone's GPS, and Uber will take you wherever you want to go. Amazing. Now, currently, labor markets are incredibly tight, and Uber prices are much higher because it's very difficult for Uber to find you a driver. How do you think about tight labor markets as a risk to Uber's business? Well, so Uber is uh, Uber's a marketplace, and um, it has had an enormous number of challenges, and you've got to manage that marketplace. We've had uh, dramatic demand and supply fluctuations uh, caused by COVID, uh, although it had one huge hedge in terms of its delivery business that was positively boosted by COVID, but its mobility business, which was prior to COVID, what most investors associated with Uber, that, uh, that got hit as, almost as hard as the travel companies uh, did. And then there was uh, the surprise that uh, they were going to need to incentivize drivers uh, to, uh, they, they were going to have to lean much more heavily than expected on driver subsidies in order to rebalance the, the, um, uh, re rebalance the marketplace. It's very easy for all of us on the demand side to start back up with Uber. All we do is open up the phone and click the app again. Uh, but for drivers, there were some frictions. Um, but the value proposi proposition here, I think, has also been proven. You've seen uh, you know, pretty material rise in pricing, and uh, uh, you have not seen dr uh, driver demand fall off uh, as strongly uh, as the pricing in some cases has shot up, i.e., there's a real value proposition proposition because people still need to get from point A to point B. And what are your alternatives? Car ownership, taxis, public transportation. That's why the, the value proposition we think is extremely compelling uh, here. But yes, there's a huge amount of execution risk associated with Uber. It's a very large TAM. They have a tiny share of it. I think the management team, I think, at Uber, uh, based on that, uh, has a lot of credibility with me personally, but I think increasingly will in the, in the market. And so um, I think there's a chance for a real re, uh, material re-rating opportunity here at, uh, at Uber and the chance for the company to be able to generate, given a small penetration of a very large TAM, the, the, the ability of the company to sustain premium revenue growth for years and years, i.e. 20% revenue growth for three, four, five years. And I don't think that's priced into the stock at all. I'd like to ask a question about changing business strategy, and I want to focus on Zillow. The company's original business plan was to offer a real estate listing platform. Zillow was successful, and in your book you refer to Zillow as real estate porn. And then Zillow changed its business plan. Zillow got into the business of buying, refurbishing, and flipping homes. And this week, Zillow announced it was getting out of that business. Now, I'm not particularly interested in whether it was a good decision or a bad one, but I am fascinated by management teams radically changing their business model. How do you think about Zillow as an example of how to radically change your business strategy? Well, I use the Zillow pivot in the book as an example. Uh, and to me, this is an example of, um, of um, the advantage of having a founder-led company. 
Uh, this was a very risky pivot that they've made. But I'm going to take you back a few years. When they first announced they were going to get into this, the market, the, the stock tanked. I think it traded off as much as 30% over the following several uh, quarters because it was perceived to be a lot more expensive than originally thought. It's a different area of competence prior to high buying. Uh, Zillow was an advertising tool for professional real estate agents and a few other things, but that was principally it. Then with iBind, they actually go into the business of trying to price, purchase, fix, sell homes. That's a very different um, you know, a set of challenges and competencies required. And it's going to be, it could be damn expensive too. And you could be sitting, on there, sitting out there with a lot of housing inventory uh, you know, and, uh, you know. Imagine what happens is there's a dramatic decline in in home prices. Are you going to be able to react quickly enough to to get that inventory off your book? I think it was the right strategic call, but I don't think they could have done that if the company hadn't been uh, founder led, because that was something that you were going to you're telling investors we're going we're going to in a, in a into a major new adjacency, major TAM, but dramatically different set of competencies that's going to be extremely expensive. I don't think most professional managers would have been would have had to would have had the guts to do something like that, uh, and it required founders. This is like Jeff Bezos announcing Amazon Prime, which hurt the stock, hurt the company's financials for the you know for a short period of time now, but back then it was unclear how long it was going to hurt. It was certainly going to be costly. Yeah, founders, founders have the ability, the guts to do that. We end each session out of a bit of optimism. What are you optimistic about your sector? I just think that there's still sustained secular growth ahead uh, for these businesses. There's two fascinating challenges, uh, I think, that need to be worked out in 2022. First is, how do we do targeting uh, and tracking of advertising campaigns in a post-privacy world? In a, uh, you know, the, the, there's probably been a big win for consumers uh, in this. Uh, they, don't, they have the ability to opt out of being tracked, but it's a huge negative for marketers and retailers, um, their ability to track consumers to know whether their ad campaign really worked or not, that's been diluted and it's a huge negative for names like Facebook. So somebody needs to do it, i.e. Facebook is one of them. Somebody can come up with an alternative, effective tracking, targeting technique in advertising and marketing that doesn't undermine privacy. Boy, there's a lot of value to be created in that. The second key issue that I'm focused on for next year, and I, my guess is will be fixed, is uh, it has stems from what I refer to as a shipocalypse. I mean, somebody who can solve supply chains, and there's a lot of uh, um, upside to the companies that can f figure that out. Mark, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. All right, that ends today's session. I want to make a plug for the next episode on Sunday, November 14th. Uh, the first speaker will be Ivy Zellman, who is a top-ranked equity analyst specializing in housing. Ivy runs her own investment bank called Zellman and is known for her controversial and contrarian investment predictions. Next Sunday, Ivy will explain why she is bearish on home prices and stocks that specialize in home building and construction. Ivy thinks that there will be a decline in housing demand because of higher interest rates that will undermine affordability just at a time when housing supply is surging and expected to hit the market. Our second speaker is Tim Bale, who is a professor of politics and international relations at Queen Mary at the University of London. Tim research focuses on European and British politics. I want to find out from Tim what are Europe's most pressing political issues and the relative popularity of the center-right political parties. In particular, I want to learn what German politics will look like post-Merkel, 
Will Macron win his re-election? And how does Boris Johnson fit into the mix? If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Take care.